beautiful microphone. All right. What time is it? Oh, 10.06. So we got everybody on there. And Brian Cardoza, I see, just joined us. That amazing uh, SoCal Edison lawyer. Welcome, my brother. So I got some good stuff to talk. Yeah, Brian's here. You want me to tell them now? We're so excited. So Gina is right here across there making faces at me, waving to everybody. And she says, tell them now rather than at the end of Alder Talk Live. And I'm like, and I'm like, nah, I'll, let's wait for another 45 minutes. <laughs> Stop. So when I met Gina, right, we had just started really going out. And I wanted to take her out one night. She goes, but I got a wedding to go to. This was last fall, right? And she goes, but why don't you meet me? It's in, it's at the Del Mar in Santa Monica. Why don't you come down there and, and after the wedding, we'll go out to dinner. So of course I get there like an hour and a half before I'm supposed to meet her. And she's texting me from the wedding. She goes, you know, there's a lot of my, my, my girlfriend's marrying this, this guy. There's a lot of basketball and football and whatever players. She goes, do you know this, the, the, the groom? His name's like Robert Dory, Robert Corey. I said, do you mean Robert Ory? She goes, yeah, yeah. Do you know him? I'm like, what do you mean do I know him? Oh, Big Shot Bob. Of course everybody knows Robert Ory. So anyway. I knew that I was in love when she's like, yeah, there's just too many like big shots here. Can, can we go to dinner early? And she leaves the wedding with all these people and comes and has dinner with me. Anyway, I've gotten to know Robert and he is a terrific guy. He went to Alabama. I invited him to the, him and his wife to the Alabama uh, LSU game party we had last year. And he didn't come because he's like, I'm the only odd man out. We become friends. I talked to him about stuff about life and success. And he started talking about his life and his success and his what and how he overcame stuff. And Gina says, why don't you have him on Alder Talk Live? And so Robert Ori is going to be joining us on October 3rd. Yep. Look at this girl right here. And we're going to make it an hour of Robert. And he's hmm, Q&A and he's going to talk about his experiences, how he came up, how he overcame things, how he, is that fucking awesome or what? That's awesome. Come on now. Gina, That's you great. That's take, great. Right? I thought you were going to say Gina's pregnant. <laughs> well, for a second. <laughs> I thought that too. <laughs> we just like chick eggs around here. Yeah. Other eggs. <laughs> I find. <laughs> Just as exciting. Mike, Mike, what year was it that Robert Ory made that shot in the finals? Uh, in the series. How long was that? Was that was that in the which of the three uh, the three peat that he hit it? Western. They were against the Kings. Mm. It was the uh, second round, and it was two thousand two. Do you were saying? So I remember, and see, I connect. So I went to LSU undergrad in law school. When I was in law school, Nikhil O'Neill was at LSU and Robert Ory was at Auburn. And they were like dueling, duking it out a couple of different years. But so, you know, you'll see. So tune in October 3rd, but there will be more people. 
tuning in on October 3rd as well. And, and I'm, I'm going to make sure it's cool with Robert, but I want it to be a question from everyone. And, you know, hopefully it's not, tell me how Kobe was like, you know, not that, but, but, um, but he's an amazing guy. He, when you, when you talk to him, you realize, you know, he, he is, He's gone through life and he's now a family man. He's a father. He's an amazing guy and you'll like him a lot. I mean, he's a really good guy. So exciting, right? October 3rd. That's the Friday, October 3rd. That's what we're planning. So, and I see AJ with his Lakers in the back. So if you didn't know who Robert Ory is, he is, he's won seven NBA championships with three different teams uh, maybe four different teams, Lakers, obviously, Spurs, Houston, and I think Phoenix? Oh, no, not Phoenix, somebody else. And the only people ahead of him were Celtics back in the, the day. So, anyway, all right, next. So, thank you all for being here. I want to I talk about the guidelines, and I want to talk about, you know, the things that I have – talked about that's also written in the guidelines and it's about how the other side thinks. And the case that happened, that just happened is, uh, um, and I'm not sure if he's even on here, very good friend of mine. I've started working with him and he does predominantly pre-lit and he's a wonderful guy. And, and he admits that he was approaching things differently. He had a case, UM case, they offer $75,000 on the UM and they offered $6,000. And I looked at the letters with the adjuster and it was just, it was back and forth about little stuff. And they went from three grand to four grand to five grand. And it had been a year. Now, what have I talked about? I have talked about proactivity. I've said one in a UM case from the very moment that you get the UM case, you have to demand arbitration. You don't even wait. Right? And then you be proactive. And not only do you demand arbitration, you say, here are the arbitrators that I would agree to. And here are their availabilities. And I'm available whenever. And my plaintiff is ready for a depot. My plaintiff is ready for an IME. Right? So I took that. I got this case from him. I was going through some of his cases and it was a $6,000 offer and it had been sitting for, I don't even know, 10 months, 11 months. So I wrote a letter to the adjuster. Hi, really great to meet you or an email. I'm associating as counsel. I noticed this hasn't been demanded for arbitration. The arbitration is now demanded. We will accept these three people. I would like to do it on the, these dates. I'm available we can use any of the three. Here's an, I'm sending you a 998 for the 75. My plaintiff's available for depot, for IME, but I also need, uh, you know, I'm going to need uh, discovery from you. I really look forward to working with you. Six days later, they tendered the 75 grand. So it's done, over, right? Now, why is that? It is, I think, because insurance companies put lawyers and cases in categories based on behaviors that we maybe don't even realize that we are doing because we have other reasons for doing it. For example, if you get involved in a case early 
right? And you file because of a statute, but you've had the case for over a year pre-lit. That is a huge check mark against you. Now, I get why you do it, right? Well, my client's still treating. I don't want to be in litigation on all my cases. Uh, I didn't have enough information to get the value that I wanted. And this, this idea that if I just hold on to this case pre-lit, I will get the stuff that I need to make it valuable. And the truth is it's actually counterproductive to hold on to that case without filing. Secondly, when you ask for the amounts, whatever their limits are, and then they tell you that they're not going to tell you, I file immediately. Right. Unless it's a small case and I know I can get that information through uh, the services or it's like an infinity or whatever. And I know it's 15 grand. Many times when they don't offer the tell you what the insurance limits are and then you hold on to the case without filing, especially for a long time, they put you in a category, which is we can lowball them. They don't want to litigate. They want to settle. Even if they litigate, we can hold off and then they will take a lowball offer. They're not going to push us. So we don't have to worry about them being on us for depots and discovery and whatever. They put you in that category. Even if you really aren't in that category, that is what you're telegraphing to the other side. And so what did that case when I got involved telegraph? Right. It wasn't that there was some well-written email. It wasn't some magic. My rep helped, of course, but that rep is generated over 25 years of doing all of the same shit that I'm telling you to do. Right. But what it did was it took us out of that category of it's not about the facts. It's about the lawyer and they are willing to lowball. They will wait. They are scared. They are not litigators or whatever. And it put it into a category where they had to look at the facts. And when they did, they realized the case was worth 75 plus and then it settled. So when I talk about filing settles a third or 40% of your cases, just because you filed, it's true because it takes you away from the low end adjuster with low authority to a better adjuster, but it also changes the mentality. And then when you file and you serve and you reach out, you send basic form discovery request for production and a notice to uh, a notice for deposition. It doesn't mean that you become in litigation. Most of the time, That changes the mentality. And as long as you have provided the defense with the information they need to get you money, many times they will go get you the money that you will never get in pre-lit, sitting it, waiting, waiting, waiting. Right? And I am sure about this because not only have I done it forever, Every young lawyer that I have gone to their office and I have, I said, trust me and try this. You got 30 cases pre-lit and they've been languishing. File all of them. A 100% of the time, 
I've come back two months, three months later, and they've settled 40% of their cases, more than they've ever settled before. And what it really was is, of course, a little bit of basic work. You got to file, you got to pay that, whatever that money, 500 bucks is, 800, 400, I forget. You got to serve, you got to send discovery. But understand that if you're going to litigate that case in a different way, but still, you got to do all that shit anyway. I'm just talking about doing it early and focusing it. And then all of a sudden, I'm like, hey, man, how you doing? He's like, dude, I have money. I can pay my bills. I can do that, that advertising that I wanted to do. I've always wanted to have some extra money to go do. Now I'm getting more cases. Now I have more time to focus on that big case rather than deal with these little. And I add, look at just this. Ray, you did it. AJ, you've done it. Right. Just in here, just since we started this, you guys have Carlos, you've done it. Right. A lot of y'all have done this just in the last, how long we've we been doing this three months in three months, you guys have done a change in a couple of things and it's several cases. Game changer, Mike. Huh? Sorry to interrupt, but that's a game changer. Like complete game changer. Who is this talking? Sorry. It's Ray. Oh, hey, right. Yeah. Total game changer. It's amazing. Now, this is not some voodoo, witchcraft, whatever. Right? Mike? Yeah. And David? Mike, does, uh, does the client still treating ever enter into your decision or whether you're filing or not? <clears throat> it's the exception rather than the rule. Now, if I'm about to make a demand and my client is a, is getting surgery in the next two weeks, yeah, I'll hang on, right? But the my client, I want to wait till my client finished treating is the single biggest sucker of money from our clients, our time, and our practices. And I mean, think about it. Have you ever thought about what are you telling the insurance company when you say, Okay, my client is now no longer needs medical care. They're fine now. They're all done. Oh, can you give me money now? That's in effect what we're saying. Now I get it. You're like, oh yeah, but 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 now we can get the money because they have the surgery. Well, a lot of times you're gonna learn early on before the surgery by making a demand, whether that adjuster prelit is ever going to give you the money when you do have the surgery. And most of the time they tell you stuff that shows that you should not stay in prelit because all you're going to do is you're going to wait till you get the surgery. And then this guy's going to lowball you then too. Right? So instead, let's say we have a case, you get it early on and they go to a, a Cairo, a, phys, a physical medicine doc, they get uh, or a, a PT, then they get to an ortho, they get an MRI, they've got problems. At some point, they start getting epidurals, right? You got three epidurals, then you at some point, it doesn't work, you're going to get a, a, a surgery recommendation, right? We all have those cases. And what? So let's say you get it, and you, it's early on, and you're the one who sends the first person, the, the patient to the Cairo PT or ortho. Now I get it. You want to get the insurance. How much insurance coverage? And let's just say that it's $100,000. $250,000. let us say $250,000 because that's a good number with surgery. 
What a lot of us think is, okay, well, I'm going to put this case on the back burner for eight months so my client can finish treating, and then I'll see if I can demand that 250 I disagree with that. Okay. Instead, why not involve the adjuster early and start a discussion that you can get information from the adjuster about how they're thinking about the case? And as soon as you have enough information to start feeding them, give it to them and demand the policy. Or say, if my client is going to get, if these epidurals don't work and my client needs surgery, then I demand, I'm going to demand the policy and see what they say. If their first offer is $3,500, I bet 99% that if your client gets surgery and you demand the 250, they're going to offer you 110. But now what you've done is you've waited eight months plus another two months for them to figure out how to lowball you. And now you're 10 months down the road or 11 or a year and a half. So I'm not saying file on day one, but I am saying that we wait for our clients to finish treating in most of our cases. And what it does is it extends the length of the cases much, much, much longer. We have unhappy clients, we have less cash flow, and it really doesn't result in more money. And in fact, I believe that if you are pushing a case while your client's treating, you're much more likely to get that money early. And imagine if you get to 250 before they have that $900,000 lean surgery. Your client gets more money too. Shocker. Right? So there is an exception, of course, like I'm saying, if, if, you know, a big medical event is happening soon, maybe you want to wait. But for most of our cases, we just like kind of put them in a, in a drawer and let them incubate. And my suggestion is let them incubate on the defense's time. Right? Don't just wait on everything. Now, these are very general things. I get it. I am happy for to answer any question on any cases that y'all have. And, you know, hey, I got 10 cases. I'm trying to figure out which ones I should file. Call me, email me. I'm, I'm happy to run them down for you and say what, what I would do with them. Right? So any questions on any of this? I know it's a little outside our comfort zone. Because everybody gets preached to, let's do it this way. Do it this way. I believe that's less efficient and less effective than what I'm telling. So what about discussion? This is Charles. I have a question. Uh, yeah. In addition to PI, I do, I do a lot of significant amount of employment cases. Um, and at first, you know, I would always put together a very comprehensive demand that was almost like a complaint that had all the facts in it. Uh, in the relevant law in the sense that I realized, you know, I was only getting about, you know, less than 50% of even a response, even some engagement as far as pre-settlement discussions. Um, and, you know, and then I just started, you know, submitting them a copy of the complaint with like a shorter letter. But do you think that, is it offensive just to get a complaint filed in, in a non-PI case? So where you're not talking to an adjuster, you know, it's just a plaintiff's case. Um, um, I'm apprehensive to just file before having any discussions. And I don't know if there's any best practices. 
I believe in employment, and I do some employment as well, that, you know, giving people a heads up is, an, a, is a courtesy. But I do also believe that in any case, that many times the length of your demand is the inverse of how effective it is. My most effective demands are, hey, I just got involved in the case. Really look forward to meeting you. Plaintiff's demand is $1 million. Time. I think that a nine-page demand is so counterproductive. It's like nobody needs to know all that. For, and secondly, no one's going to read all that shit. And what I find is on long demands, what they become like defense experts. Defense experts get medical records, and they don't look for the positives. They look for the negatives. They look for the inconsistencies. Right. And so you may have a demand and you may say nine things and eight of them are spot on. And then they will throw your demand out because one of them is not correct. And they're like, oh, yeah, but they don't know about that. And it becomes much less effective. Secondly, there is no need to teach an adjuster or a defense lawyer what the bad faith law is in your demand. You don't need to do that. They know what the law is. And when you do that, Immediately they go, oh, they must got this a form complaint, form demand letter. They're not as effective. And so, Charles, in an employment case, in any case, when you can focus on the real facts or the real claim or the real issue, get in and get out, you are much more effective. It's that way with juries. It's that that way with arguing to a law in motion judge. It's the way I was taught. And now I write all of all of our law in motion. How many times have you written law in motion? The first page is, uh, please take notice that on April 4th, 2020, the plaintiff will file a motion for da 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 with encompassing memorandum of points and authorities with supporting declarations. And at that time, we will make our arguments on that said motion. Thank you. Signature. Are you just blue two pages? Then, then you start your motion introduction. This is a personal injury. It is likely to be unread. Instead, what we've started doing, what we've done for, for decades is this is my motion. The plaintiff hereby makes a motion to compel for the following reasons, colon, one, two, three, four, five, done. Now, the judge reads that or the law clerk or the researcher, and instantly they know what they're talking about. The same with the demand. Why do you need to tell people that you represent them as their lawyer in the da, da, da? they kind of get that shit, right? They know that you're representing them. Why are you spending two paragraphs talking about how you represent this plaintiff? They get it. Then you spend another two paragraphs talking about all this, the the you know, on the 200 feet from the southwest corner of Ventura Boulevard at Colorado. That's irrelevant crap. But what it does is it makes it much less likely to read because the person who's reading it has to figure out what's going on. If it's a rear end accident, that's all you really need to say. Liability is not an issue. It's a rear end accident. Damages. But I would see paragraphs with sites to case law about how someone has to pay attention not to rear end people. 
and you're like, oh, I want to be complete. What it does is even unintentionally, I think it telegraphs that one, you're, you're trying to come up with something to say. And two, you probably got this demand off the listserv. But it also makes people less likely to read it. I've told you the defense lawyers that worry me the most is they go to depot and they take an hour and a half depot and they've asked really relevant questions and they stop. And I'm like, Oh shit. Because I know that they know what they want and they go get it. And I have taught depots for many times where I'm like the most effective stuff is getting in and getting out. And people are like, well, Mike, you got all this other stuff. I'm like, we'll find out that way later. I just want them to leave with this because they're going to realize that I got what I wanted and that's what I want to convey. And so when Charles, when you're talking about non-PI cases, I do think that courtesy is important and it is not a downside to let someone know that you're about to make a claim. Because there are cases, certainly in employment, especially if there's no insurance, that they would settle. But once it goes public, you kind of lose that chip, right? You lose that bargaining chip. And so if you make a concise demand or a concise letter that just says what really what the claims are, not that, you know, by the way, you discriminated against me based on sex, gender, uh, orientation, religion, and they're like, look, you may be right on one, but I didn't do it all nine, right? Because you get discounted when you put too much stuff into a demand letter like that. Does that make sense? It does. Thank you. So yeah, it does. I know I'm, I'm talking fast, but does anybody have anything they want to say that disagrees with what I'm saying? And it is fine. I've been wrong way more than I've been right sometimes. So Anybody got comments? Mike, I have a question. Just wanted to pick your brain about um, what do you think about putting the vehicle code in your demands? For what reason? That it was well, a lie. I would only do a vehicle code if it's like an issue where like there's an unmarked crosswalk and people don't understand what an unmarked crosswalk is. Like I got a case where they're coming from an intersection to the other side of a straight street. And they're like, oh, your clients are in fault. I'm like, no, that's an unmarked crosswalk. Maybe you need to educate them on that. Maybe you need to educate on a lane splitting motorcycle is legal. But standard right of way stuff and rear end accident stuff, I think it is counterproductive to put all that in there. By the way, boy court and all those bad faith laws. Let me just tell you what happens if you don't pay the policy. You're... I simply say, look, you got you got 30 days. Here's the plaintiff demands, whatever. You, I will do everything you need. I offer everything in the next 30 days. But after 30 days, I'm going to treat this as an open policy case. Fine. I find it to be much more effective, much more effective. And hey, Mike, quick question. Yeah. So I'm wondering about, I guess, when you demand, you make a demand, do you do a specific number sometimes? Because I tend to kind of just send a regular demand or a policy limit demand. Um, but when I send my regular, I don't put a number. What do you think about not putting a number on it? Would you turn that baby down, please? I'm yeah, sorry, I know. <laughs> I'm kidding, man. I'm just screwing with you. Sorry. 
It is the best sound ever, bro. Um, <laughs> do you know what the policy number is when you don't make a number demand? No. Okay. Well, if you don't know the number, then you don't know the number. But I find policy demands are, I, I don't find them to be that effective, right? Um, I don't know why you wouldn't know the policy. Is it because you asked for it and they didn't tell you? Or it's before you've asked for the number? Or what? I mean, those things make a difference. So if I get a case, I always ask what the policy is. And I don't like... I send a note or a letter or an email, but I also say, hey, dude, here's my cell phone. Call me. And when they go, oh, well, let me talk to my, I'm like, why? Tell me what's going on. And, and I push. Of course, a lot of times you're not going to get that number. And then if you want to make a demand, you make a, a policy limits demand. But can, let me just, how many people here have, made a general policy demand early in a case, early in a claim, where they've tendered the policy where the value is close to the policy. Has anybody ever had that happen? It's never happened. Right? When do they tender those generic policy demands? When the policy's 15 and there's 200,000 in specials, right? It's almost like a, a superfluous demand many times. And so what I would say is maybe not make that early. Get a little bit more information. Try to get more information. And then make a more specific demand if you can. But there's no, I was going to say there's no downside. There may be a little bit of a downside because everything that we do, this company sees a thousand versions of that, Right. And they kind of generalize that lawyers that do X, that wait to file till right before the statute, are the types of lawyers that get lowballed, that don't want to litigate, that don't want to. And it may not be true, but that's what they put you in that category. And then it becomes harder to dig out of that hole. You know, as another example, I got another case where the 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 pre-lit was like 14 months. They had to file before the statute. They still don't know the policy limits and they're about to litigate and the, the client just got surgery and they're like, what can I do with this? And I'm like, well, you need some sort of catastrophic intervention because waiting as long as you did, not getting the policy limits numbers as long as you did has put you in this category that the carrier's never going to offer you the real value of the case without some big event. So we decided that I'm going to come in and basically not really, but kind of say a new sheriff's in town. Like, I don't give a, what's your number? Here's the deal. I'm here's my plaintiff. I am a depot. I need your depot. Here's the discovery. Let's go. Done. And that's really what's needed to kind of yank that case out of that where that carriers put it and now put it in where they'll look at the actual facts of the case. And so a lot of times we do stuff or we, you know, get busy and cases languish and we're actually telegraphing something that we don't want to telegraph to the insurance company. Sorry, a lot of work. 
apologize, get over it, work is, right? And that's why I'm talking about how do we get where we don't ignore a case? How does a case get out of the corner? And that's where we then dovetail into routines about, okay, I'm going to look at all my cases over the next two months. I got 60 cases. So I need to look at a case, one one case a month, a day, one case a day, but I'm going to do it. And what many times is just taking the dust off of a file. And then you, if you have, oh, well, Mike said, when that happens, do this. You settle 20% more cases. It is a big game changer because you got more money to pay your bills. You have cash flow, but you have happy clients who refer you more work. Right? So now instead of one case a day, just do two cases a day. Not a huge deal. Take me up on what I'm saying. Mike, I got 10 problem cases. Can you help me with them? I can help you in 45 minutes, probably give you some good advice on how to deal with a lot of these. And remember, most of the cases that that suck up our time are the worthless ones. We make 80% of our money on 20% of our cases. We spend 80% of our time on but right, everybody's shaking their head. That's why Kenny Rogers is the best litigator, best litigation advice. You got to know when to hold them and know when to fold them. And if you can figure out those 80% that suck up your time and hold them or fold them and make a decision, it frees up so much of your time. Maybe you want to take $1,000 less and get that bullshit case out of your office. Cut your fee by 1000 Your client's happy. But you get cash flow. You move these cases. We all have a billion of those little crappy ass. We don't want to make that phone call. The adjuster's an asshole. We just can't seem to get that value, right? And we spend so much of our time. I remember a time way back when when my firm would focus on the 10 worst cases every month. And then I was like, this is exactly the opposite of what I want to do. But the reason we were doing it is because they were sucking up so much of our time. Everybody on this call has the same experience, I bet. Right? So, right, any other questions on that? All right. And please, take, take me up on this. Some of y'all have. Right? Some of y'all have. And, I, and pre-COVID, I've come to some of y'all's offices and I've just gone through files. I actually like doing it. You're not, you're not bugging me. Like I said, people, I've always said when I give out my, my cell phone or my email, I'm like, you must be inundated. I'm like, you know what? 90% of people don't do it. They never follow up. I'm going to give this speech to Loyola that I've talked about in the past that I've done every year for like seven years. It's next Thursday. Now it's remote. And it's on networking and it's stuff that I've told y'all. And I'm going to tell them these young law students, right, hungry about how to network. I'll give them the card. I'll tell them what to write to important people. And I'll tell them one of the important people is me. And here's what you write me. And here's my address. And here's what you say. Mike, you are awesome. Two, I'm hungry. I'm ready to kick some butt. Three, can I take you to coffee or lunch and just listen and learn? And then I will say 90% of you will not do it. 
I'm challenging you. In seven years in a row, it's never been more than 10% of the class. Never. It'll be that way next, next week, too. But that's okay, because look, we all realize that. So all we got to do is be in that top 10%, and we're good. And how do you be in that top 10%? Most important is you execute. You stop talking about it. You stop coming up with excuses. You execute. You do it. How do you execute and get over the malaise and the procrastination and whatever? Then we use things like routines. Because once you get into a routine, your brain doesn't have to think about every step. You just kind of get into it. That's why when you put on your gym clothes in the morning and you have your keys next to the door, it's easier to get out the door. That's why when we brush our teeth every night, we don't even think about it anymore. Because once it becomes a routine, it becomes easier to execute. And then lastly, when you change your language about the difficulties of doing something, it makes it easier to do and more likely to accomplish. So instead of something becoming hard, it's a challenge. Instead of saying, I can't do that, you say something like, that's an opportunity to prove something to myself. And changing just the language makes it a little more likely that you're going to execute. And now you times this over time and you will see a sea change. Sea change. You know, everyone has experience when you've worked out or you're eating better or whatever, and you don't think that something's changed in you. And then like you haven't seen someone for a month and they look at you and they go, man, you look good. And you didn't even recognize it. That's because incremental change is no big deal to us. But when you put it together, it is a huge deal out in the, in the world. And that's the same with our relationships, with our practices, with life. So, God, man, stop talking about all this stuff. I hear this. All right. Next. I don't know if y'all have seen the mock trial, but it is on Alder Talk YouTube channel. So last week and a half ago, I was brainstorming with some people and uh, Lori Brenner in my office had just gotten from Riverside and Riverside had all these rules about we're going to do remote trials. And we had more questions and we had answers, right? Everybody's like, well, how that's going to work? You got the kids in the background. That... And Gina overheard us and she's like, hey, execute boy, why don't you just do it? And I'm like, that's a great idea. Let's just do it and see how it comes out. So I called Mike Schoenbach, defense lawyer, extraordinaire, good friend of mine. I called a Superior Court judge in Santa Barbara, presiding judge Brian Hill. They got on board. We got a standard fact pattern that we created, and we filmed remotely with eight jurors. We had um, real trial. Uh, the judge did a little bit of addressing of the of the jurors. Then I did a voir dire. Um, Mike did his voir dire. I did opening. Mike did opening. We did a plaintiff. We did a defendant. We did a plaintiff's accident recon and a defense doctor. We did closing and a full discussion. We used a couple of exhibits to see how that worked. We changed clothes. We changed backgrounds. We did a, I stood, I sat, I did whatever. 
and we filmed it over like five hours and we're playing it in three increments. The first one was yesterday. And now you can watch it whenever you want, which was about an hour and 20 minutes, which was the, the questions from the judge and voir dire. Next Tuesday, we're going to do the second session, which is opening and the directing cross of the witnesses. And then the following Thursday, a week from yesterday, we're going to do the closing and a discussion. And we're going to offer a survey from SurveyMonkey to anybody who would like to fill out a survey and about information about what they like, didn't like, problems, questions, anything like that. Compile the information and just give it to anybody who wants it. And so um, it's what we found a lot more viable than we thought. When we went in, we were very skeptical, very skeptical. And when we came out, I said, damn it, let's push remote trials in every one of our, in every one of our cases. It is doable. It ain't perfect. But it is way more doable than you might originally think. So I encourage you all. Doesn't it's free? You just go on to we put it on YouTube because it was that was the easiest and best way to to play it, but also to add to it. You don't have to fill anything out. You don't have to do anything. But if you now go to my Alder Talk um, YouTube, and if you go to the like Instagram for Alder Law in the bio, there's a link tree, and it'll take you right to it. And just watch it, and you know. And then Tuesday, we're going to add to it. And then Thursday, we're going to complete it. And then everybody can watch it, the whole thing. It's really worth it because it will stimulate a lot of stuff. And also, I busted the defense expert on cross. Like, I busted his ass. Like, I got him. He comes in, David, in my office. And it was like, he's he's like, this is an example of, you know, thinking on your feet. He's like, yeah, I went to Harvard Medical School and I had a perfect GPA and da da da. You know, it was kind of funny. And then I was able to use that cross with some of the questions, like, how much do you make? And he's like, well, I'm not really sure. I'm like, wait a minute, I thought you got a perfect GPA in at Harvard. How do you have a perfect GPA and not remember how much money you make? That and that kind of cross is a good example of I use non-medical stuff to do a cross. So I think everybody will find it really interesting. And I think it might actually spur you to look at stuff that you like, don't like stuff that, that, Oh, you know, just the background was a big deal. I had a sheet that I was going to stand in front of, but on camera, the sheet wound up being too small. So all of a sudden my background went away. So now I've got a background with artwork in the back. Well, a lot of people said that was damn distracting, right? I get it. So then what do you do? You stand in front of a wall? Well, that's boring as hell. And But watch, everybody had different backgrounds, and that meant different things to different jurors. It was really interesting. So just go on. Like I said, it's easy if you go to Instagram onto the Alder Law and you go to the link tree in the bio, It'll there'll be a, a button just for the – for YouTube, or just go on YouTube and search Alder Talk, and you'll see the trial there. All right. Okay. So I wanted to open up and have anything else. People talk. I, I really appreciate the community that we formed, and I I love hearing from everybody. Um, what's going on?
Oh, Michael. Yeah. Uh, we were talking about the man statements and perceptions by the adjusters, just what they're thinking. And in terms of it's a using your example, conceded rear end accident, how extensive would you go into the damages, even though you've got reports and records outlining the damages? For example, let's say that it is a long therapy, conservative therapy, then they got injections, then they got even a surgery. Would you repeat that in the demand? And then one further question, would you say anything about pain and suffering? Well, I believe that you should always look at your demands to take out superfluous stuff or stuff that looks like you cut and pasted, right? A three millimeter bulge is plenty descriptive. A three millimeter bulge with diffuse tissue annular tear from impinging on the gut tells you that you just cut and pasted what was in the MRI report and you don't really understand what the hell you're talking about, right? So just be careful when you talk too much and I, that's a good example. I see four pages of treatment where each paragraph could probably be one, one sentence, right? It could, and so look at your demands with an eye towards making them more readable, more digestible. So, when you have to struggle to read three pages to understand that they went to physical therapy for nine months, then they had three injections and they've got a surgery recommendation. Many times, if you just write that, it's way more effective than they went to physical therapy on September 4th, September 11th, September 15th. That stuff gets glossed over, but what it does is it gets in the way, right? How many times you've asked, what color couch do you want? I got black and I got white. You're like, okay, good. How, what color couch do you want? Look, I got black, white, orange, maroon, periwinkle. Dot. You're like, no. That's exactly what happens in a demand letter. If you give them too much crap to read, they won't read any of it. So on a rear end accident, if it's a standard rear end with you got... Here's photos and, and there's a $5,000 damage report. Just say that. Don't say this was a heinous crash that killed the world. It's just, you see what I'm saying? It's like yeah. sometimes less is more. And understand that these people that are reading it are not just reading this for the, this type of case for the first time. They have seen thousands of these. They know exactly what, is what they can read an MRI report just like you can in terms of pain and suffering. You do want to put in stuff that people don't, the other side doesn't know, but they read every day. Every case is a catastrophic change of life that ruins this person's life forever and ever. And that, so be careful not to over argue your case. Right. So go ahead. No, I, I don't want to interrupt. I get it. What's the Same line? Thing. There's no clear line. I get it. I get it. But understand that an adjuster has seen hyenas more times than ever, right? Incredible. The impact was catastrophic. <laughs> no, it wasn't. Big impact, but come on. Nobody has 10 out of 10 pain. 
Nobody, unless your leg is cut off, you don't have a soft tissue injury with 10 out of 10 pain. You just don't. And when you say it, it's actually counterproductive. They go, ah, this is that lawyer that overstates exactly. Let me put that in that corner. Because that's the type of lawyer that also doesn't want to litigate. Oh, that's the other type of lawyer that will wait forever. That's the type of lawyer that will, it may not be 100% accurate, but it's more accurate than you think. And that's how the insurance company thinks. Same thing, same thing with uh, future care and treatment, a few sentences on that. Yeah, and again, I, I'm not saying be so brief that you cut out important information. What I'm saying is, is if you can say it more succinctly, it is much more likely to be read and digested. And then okay. finally, same thing with a mediation brief where you have a, a judge or a lawyer reading it. Jesus. Mediation briefs are like all the good mediators. Again, they've seen literally thousands of briefs. If it's a rear end accident, you should say liability, rear ender, next, damages. There is no need for, other than the date, right? The date and maybe the venue. You know, you don't need to tell someone that they were stopped at a stop sign, the defendant was looking somewhere else and was, you know, speeding and then rear ended the person and there was damage. But, and it's an admitted liability case. That's just superfluous crap that the mediator has to weed through to get to the real stuff. Does that make sense? Yeah, very much. Very Mediators much. and judges, they love when you cut to the chase. They love it because they don't have time or energy to read all that, that fluff. Right? If you work at Gibson, Dunn & Crutcher, fluff away by the hour. But we are PI lawyers. We cut to the chase. We rely on people. And what it does, Jeff, is it maybe even unintentionally tells the other side, you know what the hell you're doing. When I get that, when a defense lawyer is like, look, I don't give a shit about anything. This is the relevant issue. I'm like, God damn it. Person knows what they're talking about. I want to talk about fluff. If he was talking about fluff, I'd be great. He's pinpointed what we're talking about. And many times you are communicating that even unintentionally to a, to a defense lawyer or an adjuster because they see so much crap all the time. When you don't give them crap, you stand out like a sore thumb, and then they give you money to get you out of their life. Hey, Mike, I was keeping track. The shorter my demands got, the bigger the offers became. I'm actually kicking myself because the last demand I sent was like 13 pages and I still sent it anyways. And I could just read the desperation and the demand kind of saying, pay me, pay me. And I'm kicking myself for it. You might as well write first sentence. Look, I really, 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 really want to settle this case. Please give me some money. Oh, by the way, let me tell you about the case. That's what you're telegraphing. Yeah. You heard that? I believe that that's actually, if you studied, the number that you get is probably directly inversely proportional to the number of words in your demand. I bet that's actually not an out of this world scenario. I really believe it. When I get, and the same thing goes with, with law students. I'm like, when you write me a cover letter, that's like four pages. 
you write me a cover note that says you're the bomb. I want to learn from you. How do I get in to see you? I'm in. Right. It is same when you're asking somebody on, I would assume when you're courting someone and you like give them your life story for six years, as opposed to like something that they're interested in when you're talking to your spouse or your kids and they want you talk about stuff succinctly that shows that you're listening and you understand what's going, it's more effective than just spouting off the top of your head. These are general principles that, you know, and remember honey more than vinegar, honey, more than vinegar, strong honey, but never vinegar. And I just repeat this as we end heard it again two days ago an older lawyer said you know he just kind of out of the blue we were talking he goes i see these young kids and they're like man i'm gonna be an ass to the adjuster i'm gonna scare them into giving me money and what they don't realize is you're not scaring them into giving them money there's you're you're teaching them how to hate your guts for the rest of their career and i see this all the time the frustration and the anger, especially with COVID and money. And we're like, why can't you listen? I'm like, it's actually counterproductive. Now, you can be honey and give an extension, but be strong, honey, and give it a two-week extension when they ask for three months, right? You've accomplished what you want. You are and be open and honest and say, look, I'm not going to be able to give you that long an extension. I see that you're in a pickle and you need some help. I'm willing to help you to a certain extent. But you got to understand, I got a client too. There ain't a defense lawyer in the world or an adjuster that doesn't understand that. And it, it is good karma. It's good civility. It's good practice. And it over the long term, you come in a case and six days later, you settle it for policy. And you make 20 grand in a week. That's overtime reputation. It works, guys. All right. Thank you, Mike. Where's Robert Ori, please? <laughs> let's say, let's say, Van, I know we're really not short on time, but I, I, yesterday I had a, a, a call, a meeting confer about a motion to compel. And it's a you know well-known defense attorney who does police misconduct cases, but just the, the tone that the way he was talking to me, it made me angry. Um, and the whole rest of the afternoon, I was angry. Everything I was doing, I was doing it angrily. I was thinking about the case angrily. How do you deal with with that um, and not let that affect you and how you practice and the decisions that you make, you know, in a in a case? Oh, I, how many of us have been there, huh? I've been there. Like, motherfucker, I'm going to kick you. Right? Well, first of all, I will say generally, understand that you own your emotions and uh, we all own our emotions. And I, I say this with as much understanding and care is that you do have a choice of letting him affect the rest of your day. Having said that, we all have done this a thousand times and it's easier said than done. I get it. But here's how I then de dealt with it. I said this a few months ago, I think. I used to be so wound up when I was younger about defense lawyers in particular who were like, you know, just assholes or nice to you in your face. And they go back to their office and they write you a note that's like they want to kill your firstborn child. You've all had those experiences too, right? 
and I was listening to a retired judge who was a mediator in San Francisco. And she said, everybody had that experience. Here's what you could think about it. Said a certain percentage of the population is mentally ill, right? They've got a mental illness. And that's probably equal, if not more, the same percentage in the legal community. So one, that person that is doing this is likely to be mentally ill. And I started thinking about that. And suddenly I was like feeling sorry for this guy. And I'm like, oh, well, man, I guess you're, and it made it easier to put it into context. Secondly, I started to think about his family. And I said, God, if he's this much of a jerk, his family must hate him. I really feel sorry for that guy. And then it took the edge off of it. And then I started to say, whatever this guy is doing to you, he's doing to himself probably a thousand times more. And then I started to say, man, I kind of feel bad for that guy. And it took the edge off, right? That guy has got more problems than you times a thousand because of who he is. I bet, you know, he kicks his dog. I bet he doesn't tip very well. I bet whatever. I feel bad for that son of a bitch. And then it took the edge off. So I don't know if that helps at all, but it certainly helped me. And then at some point, I'm just like, dude, you got way more problems than me. Just thank you. Next. Right. And then I said, well, shit, I'm 52. I got about 12,000 days left in my life. Why am I going to blow one of them on that jackass? And then it made it a little easier. So you think about it in a couple of different ways. But I don't know if that helps you, but I've been there so many times. We all have. Yeah, thanks. Yeah. Figure out a way to deal with that. Yeah, yeah and so I'm happy to, to brainstorm them. But the other thing is sometimes you just cut right to it. You know, I've sometimes I've written them and I'm like, look, I'm not trying to be patronized in any way. We got off on the on the wrong foot, and I don't know what happened, but what can I do to improve this? I'm willing to do what we need to do it because I know you are. You and then you compliment. You seem like you're a really good lawyer that really wants to wants to um, protect your client. So do I. Seems like we kind of are alike more than different. What can we do to make things better? Doesn't work all the time, right? Some people who are jack who are assholes for 45 years. They're just asshole. You're not going to change them in one day. But sometimes they may be having a bad day. They may be having a bad week. And you got to just kind of pull them out of it. What's You miss 100% of the shots you don't take. What's it going to hurt to try it? Right, Malisak? Yes, correct. Right? You know, are dealing with a couple counsel that just you want to bring your necks. And then she took a step back. Right? Did a little breathing, right. right? Right. And you got back on track. That's right. That's why they call this the practice of law. <laughs> all right, guys. I'm going to go. Um, so check out the mock trial on Alder Talk uh, YouTube channel. And then I'll see y'all next Friday. And really, I'll say it one more time. 90% don't. But please, take me up. Send me an email, call me. If you want to talk about some cases that you're trying to figure out what to do with, I might be able to help you cut to the chase and, and get it off your plate. All right? Thanks Have very much, Michael. Great job. Thanks, Mike. Have a good one. Bye, guys. Later. Bye.